This fall, the Council launched the Center for Co-Occurring Disorders, a groundbreaking initiative designed to address substance use and mental health issues together. Substance use and mental health disorders often go hand in hand, with the National Institute on Drug Abuse estimating that about half of those who experience a substance use disorder will experience a mental illness during their lives and vice versa. Despite the well-established link between these conditions, many treatment providers cannot or do not address substance use and mental health together, which leads to increased costs, duplication of services, and most importantly, poorer outcomes overall. The Council launched our Center for Co-Occurring Disorders to respond to this critical challenge. In today's episode of Healing Choices, we will explore the connection between substance use and mental health, as well as the challenges and benefits of treating these conditions together. Plus, we'll explore the history of substance use and mental health treatment in Houston, and how for 75 years, the Council has played a role in advancing care, research, and training around these life-changing conditions. Hi, everybody, and welcome. Uh, my name is Mel Taylor. I'm the president and CEO at the Council on Recovery. Uh, I'm excited. This is a topic near and dear to my heart as we talk about what we call co-occurring disorders, uh, the relationship between substance use, abuse, and mental health, mental illness. And joining me today are two great experts and uh, part of our conversation, uh, Dr. Kimberly Parks, who is an addiction psychiatrist currently uh, at Bentob Hospital and is an assistant uh, professor at the Baylor College of Medicine in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Uh, and she has a special interest in women's mental health and addiction treatment. And more important to us, she's recently joined our team to support the newly launched uh, Center for Co-Occurring Disorders. Uh, and also joining us is Lori Feaster, who is our Director of Clinical Services. Uh, and uh, Lori uh, has, I don't know how many years of service as a lead social worker and clinician with the council's uh, various uh, programs. So we are excited to have them join us. Welcome, Dr. Parks and Lori. Good to have you all here. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. My view is we have both a medical and a community-based perspective on the issue of co-occurring disorders, and I'm excited to have maybe you two compare and contrast, but I'm also interested in the history and the evolution of treatment. So I'd really like to start with Dr. Parks and, and just talk a little bit from your perspective on how substance abuse and mental health issues are being recognized and treated today and maybe what's changed, uh, not only historically, but maybe even on, in your time as a, uh, both a faculty member, professor, as well as a, a, a treater of these issues. Sure. Historically, I think that, you know, as we look back over addiction treatment, there have been kind of swings in the pendulum back and forth to, you know, less treatment and not really acceptance of talking about addiction. And and swinging the other way where we talk about it more and offer more treatment. And I think the biggest shift started back in the 70s, uh, most recently where you know we did establish addiction psychiatry and started treating with methadone and um, 
you know, I think the 80s, we had a little bit more conservative views come back again and in the 90s, but I feel like now we're starting to talk about addiction more again. And um, especially with opioid epidemic, I think that we had to because too many lives are being lost unnecessarily. So even during my training, during medical school and residency and in the mid 2000s and 2010s and we've been really trying to treat much more aggressively so i think that we've had a lot more access to care and you can even see in the administration that uh, samsa um, our division of the government that helps to fund these things has started funding a lot more addiction treatment because they just see the need because the opioid epidemic is still going on today so I still think we have a long ways to go to get everybody treatment that needs it, but we're starting to make progress. As we record this, we're in the end of one year with COVID. And I dare say no one really anticipated all of the changes that we're seeing and perhaps in the treatment side um, uh, as well of what we're doing, not to mention just the emergence of, of coping with, you know, everything that's going on. Lori, in, in, from your perspective, talk a little bit about what you're seeing emerging in treatment and what's changed, and particularly maybe even in the last year. Well, I've, I've been a social worker for 30 something years and um, never in my life did I think I'd be standing and being in with substance use treatment, but here I am. And the reason why was every part of any mental health work that I ever did anywhere, um, substance was around. And in, from the very beginning, it was a separate deal. The folks that had substance use went one place and those that had mental health went the other, but most of the time they had them together. So in the sense of, uh, at the council, we've treated co-occurring all along in the Center for Recovering Families, but not necessarily paid for and or recognized. And so in the last year, we're starting to see more of the funding come about um, as the recognition that there is a co-occurring issue with both sides of the fence, those that suffer with mental health first um, or those that suffer with substance as their primary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know from just talking to my colleagues elsewhere, they're seeing a lot more emergence of suicide ideation, self-medicating, uh, trying to cope with all that uh, as a, as a, person that's also, I mean, for all of us as professionals, we're also coping in our own lives. I mean, we're record, as we're recording this, we're virtual today. All of us are, are alone uh, in, in that isolation. Maybe you guys could talk a little bit about some of the issues as we talk about co-occurring. What do we really mean by that? Talk a little bit about how we treat things if they're truly gonna be co-occurring. Dr. Parks? Well, I think that, you know, there still have been different models that people are using. Um, when I was in residency, I was taught that you have to treat the addiction first, otherwise you can't treat the underlying disorder, but that leaves a lot of people without treatment for other really important diseases. Like if you're very depressed, it's going to be hard to stop drinking or, or using a substance. So the current model is telling us that we have to treat people together as a whole, otherwise we're just missing parts of them. I'm depressed because I drink or I drink because I'm depressed, right? It's the I mean, chicken and the egg. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, is there is are there exemplary programs out there that you could could cite that might be getting close to a model that would that we should be looking at here in Houston? Is there anything out there that you've seen that holds promise? Well, I do think that this is one area where some of the VAs have been a little bit ahead and that they've had Great. everything in-house where you could go to your opioid treatment program, you could go to your addiction treatment program and have your, your therapy and everything in the same location. And I, I think that that's in one way that they've really been ahead of the curve in, in establishing. And unfortunately, a lot of us, you know, when they made the hospitals and made the clinics, uh, for private practice or for, you know, the public hospitals like that we all um, generally go to that they didn't necessarily think about having everybody in exactly the same location. Makes it the easiest for us to all talk to each other and, yeah. and meet up. Yeah, yeah. From, from a clinical social work point of view, Lori, how are we treating the problems as, as we call, we talk about co-occurring, how are we treating the problems at the council currently? Well, I think we're on the same track um, as Dr. Parks in the sense that we attempt to do both at the same time. Um, while we, uh, most of our clients have a mental health issue, we might not see the very, very serious ones, but we absolutely see major depression, uh, bipolar, generalized anxiety, et cetera. So we are um, helping them stay sober and making sure that they have the appropriate referrals to assist us in our care. Mm -hmm. So first of all, co-locating the service and then recognizing that both issues coexist mm -hmm. and one impacts and does a dynamic Im impact on the other. And it's a constant, I would think, give and take. I used to say, show me somebody that drinks and I'll show you somebody that's depressed uh, and vice versa. Um, what are what is historically, uh, I remember in the old days, you know, it goes back to, I don't remember them, but I've read about them in graduate school, you know, sanitariums or, or this whole idea of locking people up. Uh, and many times strikes me that we might've been locking up people who were struggling with alcoholism and, and maybe not necessarily, or maybe having a mental health issue as well. Um, is, is treatment in a, in a lockdown setting more effective, less effective? Uh, what, de what defines what people, what kind of treatment people need? So historically, yeah, you're, you're on the money with we had the the sanitariums like we can talk about like the 1800s in particular um some places did actually have sanitariums that were particularly for each substance of abuse wow. and so uh, there were medical societies that were being formed and trying to treat it the best that we could unfortunately we didn't have a lot of the medications that we have today so it was hard to treat them the same way we do today but there were a lot of efforts to to try to treat people, but starting the 1900s, the temperance movement took a lot of that away. That took off like wildfire, and a lot of this was shut down. Um, but you know, the people today that say we would refer for being in a rehab program where it's residential and they live there for 30, 60, 90 days, and some of them even longer, um, some of that depends on the severity of the illness, how 
how likely they are to relapse and if they've had many different relapses. Um, it can get to the point where people do need that break from the everyday stressors in order to really focus on dealing with their cravings, dealing with the triggers that come up so that they can focus on the mental health and addiction portion so that when they do go back out, that they are better prepared. Lori, what's ideal? What would you like to see if a family called you and, and they're looking for help for a co coexisting or co-occurring issue? Well, first of all, motivation. <laughs> that's that's usually the help. yeah. <laughs> like they want it. Um, it's 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 great. It's a great gift to have, and not all the time does that work. Um, they have to be medically stable, just like Doc's, Dr. Parks was saying that um, they have to be able to be able to sit in the chair for two and a half hours and have access to their emotional well-being or maybe not well-being to um, be able to learn uh, new skills and have the presence to participate in the activities. Uh, as, and the family, we'd love to see the families participate because this is a family disease and it impacts each and every one of the family members. So when they come, we're hoping that they are ready to go, um, have the availability to be present, and we will do the rest. Good. I noticed you mentioned family, treating the whole family. How important is that to a recovery success story? I'm a bit biased. Uh, I, you know, as a person from a, a addicted family, I think it's absolutely necessary um, because it's it, it, again it impacts, and so it, I think it just helps that person who we identify as the client have the support, have the, the family have the same language begin to have the same skills and even have a little attention on them because they are also suffering. Mm -hmm. um, they've been suffering in a different way. So it, it, to me, it's, it's very important. So, yeah, it seems to me, I mean, the, the, the social work perspective and that might contrast to a medical perspective, but you take someone out of their family environment, out of their in surroundings and they go into a residential treatment center for, I don't know, 30 days, 60 days, whatever. And then they come back. If nothing's changed, it seems to me that relapse is going to be a lot more possible than if the family is engaged in recovery. Any thoughts on that, Dr. Parks? Oh, I think that's completely true. Um, you know, it's one thing that we've even talked about um, with my colleagues um, where we've been kind of, we've theorized an extra part of Maslow's hierarchy where you know you have your pyramid where you're you know you start at the very bottom where you're just trying to get your food and shelter and your basics and you know as you do better and better you start to gain relationships job and you know try to get to a higher level of functioning but we've argued that if you're in a rehab you're kind of not even in Maslow's hierarchy at all that you're really in what we we call, we call the dungeon because <laughs> you're you know, you're okay and you're separated, but you know, you're not really maintaining your housing. You're not interacting with family and relationships. You're just kind of outside the whole game. And so when you get thrown back in, suddenly you have all of these things that you need to maintain and do. And that is a lot of stress. So it really kind of puts people in rehab in a different place in life, or as we call Maslow's dungeon, where you're not really maintaining those needs. So 
it is something that we have to work on for when people leave rehab. That kind of then goes to the, the my next question or next observation is how long does treatment take? And that is a loaded question. How long does treatment take? It's such an individual journey. It's it's hard to even say. <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean my bias is that it's the rest of your life. That it's one day at a time, and it's the rest of your life. Is that 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 the whatever you've been doing that got you here, we have to alter those those behaviors. Alter certainly, quit consuming substances and self medicating, and begin to manage a program of recovery. And my view is that takes the rest of my life. I know it for me. It's as a person in recovery, it takes it's one day at a time. Uh, so. And that's a hard question for, you know, a person who is struggling because uh, they do want answers. And when you right. talk about giving up their beloved, their choice of drink or drug um, never seems awfully long. And so we really do focus on the here and now and one day at a time. And, and at times it's a second and a breath and moving on to the next breath. Yeah, well put. I used to, I asked somebody years ago when I was just starting out in this field, and uh, I said, you know, where did 28 days come from? Uh, do either of you know, do y'all know the answer to that question? Uh, it, it, it turns out that somebody in the East Coast called an actuary, an insurance actuary, and they were trying to figure out how to get this stuff paid for. And they did, A, they didn't know how much to charge, and B, they didn't know, and, and we didn't know, professionals in the field really didn't have an idea, but somebody said, four weeks is about right, boom, and that's where 28 days came from. Uh, you know, I judge that lengths of stay depend on the severity of the problem and how intertwined both addiction and mental illness are taking place. Uh, in a residential mental health setting, uh, Dr. Parks, uh, what kind of things go on and over what period of time? You know, if, if somebody was interested in what, if I go to treatment, what's going to happen to me? So some of it does depend on the program itself. Like some programs have very defined limits on how long they will let someone stay. Um, some of the ones that, you know, I've had my patients go to, it really varies. Some of them go for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. Those are those common timeframes. They attend typically multiple groups where there's education about addiction. Um, and typically there's also integrated AA and there may also be integrated um, work so that people have more activity to do during the day. It really depends on the program. Um, and at different time points, you know, meeting with counselors there, they will make decisions on if they need to stay longer, if they would like to stay longer, how ready are they feeling for the transition out. Um, but we do know that there are some longer term programs that we have here in Houston that are even years where they do actually help you with, like you have to have a job, you have to have a car so that you have a transition and gain more freedom slowly. 
and and I would I would assume the longer we stay engaged, the better likelihood of us positive recovery. Um, so the perfect handoff would be at the at the Center for Recovering Families, which is our outpatient home. Lori, what would you like to see if someone is coming out of a residential facility? How would you like to see that handoff made, and what usually is the best practice for you in that regard? Well, often the facility will contact us and we'll set up an assessment for that uh, soon-to-be client. And as soon as they arrive, they're assessed and on board. We don't want to waste any time between the residential and the intensive outpatient, basically because it's really simple to get back into old behaviors once they feel the air out of the dungeon. <laughs> um, you know, you, you remember, oh yeah, this is the stuff that's fun to do. And, uh, and then also getting overwhelmed with the reality of the world and, and then, you know, uh, not going back to the things that we used to do. So uh, when they get into intensive outpatient, then they're usually working, they're coming to us in the evenings, uh, so most of their days are full are full of recovery, um, and we want to then fill their weekend so that they can remember the next thing to do when they have a trigger or a craving. Um, all along, then we want to then hook them into a continuum, which might be an aftercare program, which we also uh, do at the center, and there are others also around town that we would refer to. Uh, always want to keep them hooked in and connected some way because this is what this is how to stay sober is connection is the recovery model that we try to utilize with whether it's AA refuge recovery smart recovery their individual therapist whatever whatever helps them make that transition got it got it um, and I was uh, just thinking about our relationship. Uh, with Baylor, and it really goes back a long way. I don't, Dr. Parks, I don't know if you're aware that we in the 1950s, Baylor College of Medicine and the council together opened the first alcohol clinic at, at uh, the old Jeff Davis Hospital. In 1950, we treated 139 patients with 636 visits, and it was a joint project. Uh, and then I remember. Uh, it must have been 15 years ago now, we went to uh, Stuart Yudovsky, who was the department chair, and really had talked about how we could co-locate our substance abuse uh, treatment specialists, co-locate them in Harris Health Clinics uh, around uh, the Harris County system, medical system. And uh, they, those are actually today, I think that program still exists, although we're no longer in collaboration, because the program became just integrated and it's part of now, I believe it's still part of uh, what uh, Harris Health is doing in terms of providing comprehensive services. So we go back a bit, uh, way past us. And, and this program today, our new Center for Co-Occurring Disorders, working with you is for me a real treat because we have addiction psychiatry and I love having your expertise on our team. So just uh, welcome and we're glad you're here. What kind of things do you envision we might be doing for the community as we get this program kicked off? I know you and Lori and some of our other staff 
any thoughts about what we can be doing coming up or what we maybe have already got planned that we're going to be doing with the Center for Co-occurring Disorders? Well, it's, it's going to be really nice to have, you know, the addiction psychiatry present and there and making it easier to all work together to treat. And um, I'm excited to add further treatment options, like for those that are appropriate for medication as something that we could do and even think about like the other medical illnesses that may be making it harder to stay sober or, um, and then just to have access to so much wonderful therapy for our patients as well and doing it all together. It's just such a wonderful resource to put in the same place. We will be also looking at some research options as we continue to move forward. What, what is the best practice to begin? Uh, and, and Dr. Parks, I know you've already done some training with staff. You want to talk a little bit about the things that you've done already as you've become part of our team uh, and what we're planning maybe coming up? Sure. So we've been doing uh, we've been doing training with all of the the staff on various substances of abuse and uh, looking at each of them individually and increasing everybody's knowledge on how it works, what happens when you use it regularly, how it can affect mental health, and how it can affect medical health overall. Um, just so that everybody is increasing their own knowledge base and then a little bit on what medications we might be using so that if a, a new person comes in seeking treatment that everybody knows what medications they're on and what it's for and how to best support them in taking it. That's fabulous, that's fabulous. And I know it, it's, it's my intention and desire and I know you guys, uh, uh, are on board with this, that we do as much training to the overall community as we can, both professionals uh, uh, as well as family members and others. And uh, that, that's probably the biggest opportunity we have to bring uh, medicine and community together and offering this and, and offer training and conversation. Wouldn't it be great if we all spoke the same language and had the same common set of goals in an ideal um, circumstances. So I got a, got a final question for you all. If, if you had the magic wand and all the money in the world, what would the components, as, you, as you're looking at it now, what would the components of an ideal behavioral health system look like? What would, what would be included in that ideal behavioral health system? So I think, a little bit of what I've already mentioned being like, I am a huge fan of everybody being in the same location, especially for a clinic and like for an intensive outpatient, having psychiatrists in the same location as, as therapy. And my ultimate, like if I had to think what I could really wish for would even to add in extra things like primary care, because we know that uh, a lot of the population that, that struggles with addiction doesn't even get to see the primary care doctor as often as they do. And that's part of the reason why they tend to have um, struggles with basic medical issues like high blood pressure and easy to treat things like that. So my ultimate dream would be after everybody gets together for the mental health to then add in people that they can see to just get that whole, whole body health really, because it all just plays in together. Really integrated, truly integrated. Mm -hmm. Lori, what do you think? What would you add to that picture? 
Well, I think she's, you know, on track. I think that's exactly where I'd go, but I also want to start at the beginning and that's easy access. I want folks to be able to call and get an appointment without uh, jumping too many hoops, being able to be heard, um, being able to get to the right place easily. You know, I'm going to throw in that, you know, we're a great place to start deal because we are, you know, and so this is another opportunity for us to uh, show our expertise and how to get people where they need to go. Yeah, I am looking forward to the day, and it's not too far away. Uh, Dr. Shaw from uh, the Department of Psychiatry, uh, who is a good colleague, friend of ours, um, has and I have dreamed of the day that we can co-locate council staff in places inside the Harris Health System and even at Ben Taub so that we can be part of the team. And as you mentioned, Dr. Parks, having uh, you know, primary care, behavioral care, and social workers right there all focused on this issue to me would be such a wonderful place to start. I wanna thank you all very much. Um, this has been wonderful. I, we could talk a lot and maybe we will come back in, in uh, six months or so and talk about maybe some of the changes that have occurred due to the work that we're doing together in this uh, launching the Center for Co-Occurring Disorders. Uh, and until then, I just want to say thank you all for your time today and thank you all for listening. Uh, my name is Mel Taylor and this has been Healing Choices. Thank you all. This podcast is sponsored by the Council on Recovery, Houston's largest nonprofit provider of prevention, education, outpatient treatment, and recovery services. For more information on the Council's work, you can visit www.councilonrecovery.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you or your loved one needs help with an addiction or co-occurring disorder, call 713-914-0556 to schedule a screening or assessment. You know someone who needs us.